welcome back to the Compassionate Activism Podcast. I am your co-host, Shelly Leverage. And I'm Sky Latimer. We are so excited for today's episode, but first, we need to talk about our self-care. Sky, when we talked last week, you had some plans for your self-care. How did this last week go for you? Well, you know, I would give myself a solid C-. Uh, not great, but <laughs> definitely has room for improvement. Um, I still drink my water. I did really good with setting my alarm clock to get up a little earlier to not go straight from sleep to toddler chaos. Uh, so I did mm. well in that area. But on the physical fitness, ah, not so great. Not so great. That's fair. It was a weird week. Mm-hmm. At least I know it was for me. I feel like I backslid a little bit this week. The sleep did improve because my husband is a very gracious person mm. and offered to sleep on the couch until he is adjusted to waking up at this new time to where he can wake up without his alarm, which is what typically wakes me up. So without his alarm, like just naturally? Yes. Wow. Tell him to start that as a like a, a YouTube page, a tutorial. <laughs> teach us. Please teach me. So that should be coming along for him soon. So that's good. So I did get more sleep and that was definitely helpful, but I felt like my, my headspace was not good. I had some really down days. Um, I was traumatized by money a lot last week. So that's never a good combination for me. And I think that just sort of stalled out and maybe backtracked some of the progress that I was making, but we have time change that just happened. Glory. I'm really hopeful that this is truly the beginning of the end of seasonal affective disorder season mm-hmm. and we can start to be more cheerful on the daily. We shall see. I'm hopeful for it. I feel like not only has it been dark you know, sun moon wise, but just dark and heavy in terms of our spirit, you know, this um, past week was two years since all of this started. So that heaviness is absolutely still weighing on us. And I'm sure that our body remembers that. It does. Yeah, we were having that discussion in our discord, or I've seen it a lot on Twitter too. Mm -hmm. People talking about if you're feeling off right now, keep in mind what time this is. Your body absolutely remembers. It has a memory of these traumatic events, whether it's latent or not, which sucks because it was such a collective trauma Mm -hmm. that the collective remembering of that is going to be hard to avoid at any point in time. It's also very hard. And mixing that in with everything else that's happening in the world and everything that's happening with all of the state legislatures that are in session, it's just a lot. Yeah, it is. Any plans, hopes for your self-care for the next week? You know, I really, it is very important to me that I get my reading under control. Yeah. And by that, I mean reading at all. (laughs) (laughs) I have so much reading I need to do and that I want to do. So it's another one of those, like we were talking about last week, it's another one of those situations where I have a ton of desire and no motivation. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what the key to unlocking that is. The only thing I know to do is to just do it until it's a thing. Yeah. 10 minutes, 15 minutes, listening, physically reading, digitally reading. I think I just need to work on my choices a little bit. It would be so easy for me to pop on a podcast that I want to listen to. Hello. On the way to... (laughs) picking up my kiddo from school. Yeah. It would be so easy to listen to that at any time when she's not in the car. It would be totally reasonable for me to pick up a book after I get her down to sleep at night instead of picking up the remote. So, you know, some of it is just changing habits and making different choices and leaning into now that we know it is. And we talked about this in our newsletter last week. It is supposed to be uncomfortable when you make mindset shifts like that, like you're rewiring your brain. It's not supposed to be easy. It is meant, it's not necessarily meant to hurt, but it just does. It's uncomfortable. Right. So accepting that and working through it anyway will be, I think, the big challenge for me this week. I believe in you. Oh, thank you. 
You know, I um, recently I said that I wanted to get back into dancing. And so I feel like even though I don't have a studio that I'm going to be dancing at or have booked anything yet, I feel like I just need to dance, to just work on choreography, to make a reel or dance with Cal in the kitchen, whatever it may look like. I think I just need to move my body and kind of, you know, the movement of joy and rhythm and spring being here. I think that's what I need to do. I just got really excited at just the concept of Sky and Cal dance videos coming soon <laughs> to my Instagram feed. <laughs> so I'm going to need that to happen now. I got you. I'm invested. <laughs> I got you. He's like actually really interested in various sounds now. So we'll make it happen. Cool. Can't wait. Welcome to the podcast, Nicole McAfee. We are just giddy. I mean, beyond thrilled to get to talk to you today. You were one of the first people that we put on our list when we were thinking about who we wanted to invite to come join us on this podcast. And we're just so excited to learn more from you. Will you give our listeners a little bit of background on yourself and let them get to know you a little bit if they don't already? Uh, Sure. My name is Nicole McAfee. My pronouns are she and they. I live on occupied Kickapoo, Osage, Kiowa, Wichita, and Comanche land um, in Oklahoma City. And I'm currently the executive director at Freedom Oklahoma. Um, Before that, I did work at the ACLU of Oklahoma. I did electoral campaign work prior to that. And all of that is a very different life path than I thought I would have. doing really international comparative politics focused studies uh, up through grad school. And um, it was actually uh, seeing Wendy Davis filibuster on the floor of the Texas State Senate while I was in Poland and realizing that I was not closest to the the pain in my community um, and that I couldn't do anything about it from where I was that made me say, what can I do to shift sort of my priorities a little closer to home? Wow. wow. I had <laughs> forgotten about that. I remember it now that you mentioned it, but yeah, that was, that was a moment, wasn't it? Yeah. So what do you feel like is the definition of being an activist? I think for me, being an activist is really the combination of, of being an advocate. So engaging in education and action on behalf of yourself or your community less organizing. So it's taking that advocacy out into the world and organizing your broader community, um, folks beyond your community to take action alongside you. We talk about the sort of confluence between advocate and activist a lot, because I think people get a little uncomfortable with the term activist. And so they'll say, oh, no, 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 I'm not an activist. I'm an advocate. Do you consider yourself to be an activist? I do. I I definitely understand and have like experienced some of that tension myself um, and, and sort of the way that these words are so often politically charged and most often by the people who are trying to disrupt our activism, the people who want to paint it as a bad or negative um, thing or something that is too disruptive. So they will talk about folks as activists in a way that makes it sound wrong. Um, and I think that learning to to own and accept um, the long tradition of activism and the space that activists have always existed in that is the target of a lot of that energy from people who would rather us not do this, this activism work. Um, was sort of an important part for me and my my journey in taking my advocacy sort of into the activist space. It can be scary for sure. And we talked about that with Hannah, how, you know, part of the stigma around the term activist comes from a lot of places, but a lot of it is anger over people using their voices to affect change that makes them uncomfortable. And it's challenging beliefs that they have held for a long time, and that makes them uncomfortable. Nobody wants to feel like they've been doing harm or anything like that. And 
it can be a personal wake up call that isn't always welcome when people see activists out in their spaces and affecting change and doing good work. So you talked a little bit about how you came into activism. What brought you specifically to legislative activism? Because you've been you've been a staple in Oklahoma, at least, as far as keeping up with state bills and all of the harm that is being done there. And you you've really sort of sacrificed yourself to keep people informed and to keep people aware of what is happening. How did that come about for you? So I I watched Wendy Davis and that filibuster and my question in the the coming months was what can I do to protect rights and liberties on the ground closest to home? Um, And initially that answer for me was electoral advocacy. So I did campaign work, which is grueling and exhausting in many ways, um, as the folks who do that for much longer periods of time than I did can tell you well. Um, And I think in campaign work, I met a lot of great people. I built a lot of skills that I still use today, but I also found the frustration of even when we elected folks um, with good intentions who wanted to do good, it was so hard for them to take the actions that they envisioned because of the systems that they were working within. And especially sort of post-2016, I worked the presidential campaign cycle that year, and it was a devastating one. And in 2017, early on, I did electoral work um, in Cherokee Nation elections and got to a point of, do I want to look for another election cycle to dig into? and instead said, what if I did some work around transparency in these systems and making them easier for folks to understand and also trying to gain some of the support to either disrupt harm moving in the legislature especially or to try to actually pass um, some positive efforts that more closely align with what a lot of folks on the ground want. What differences did you see between our American political structure as in terms of working on the campaigns are, you know, the American version of this democratic political structure and what you saw with the Cherokee nation. Um, I think that there are definitely some similarities. Um, the Cherokee nation government is exists within, um, and is working within a colonized system, um, that it is not untouched by the structures that, govern us um, and the electoral decisions that federal and and state governments have made. But I think uh, a few really unique things. Um, One, there are no parties within the Cherokee Nation. Oh, interesting. So folks really got to talk about issues in a much deeper way. Um, There weren't sort of those immediate alignments based on on party identification. It's fascinating. Yeah. There is definitely a, a deeper urge within the Cherokee Nation to make sure that voting is more accessible. Um, so elections happen on Saturdays. You've got early voting ahead of that. Absentee ballots are, are really accessible to as many people as possible. And I think that that's really nice um, that folks aren't having to think about taking time off of work or standing in long lines. We saw sort of much more efficient voting mechanisms there. And I think that there are definitely a number of challenges that still exist too. Um, I worked two cycles in the Cherokee Nation, both 2015 and then 2017. So uh, a a chief's race and then tribal council um, races beyond that. And one of the things that is definitely still a fight is ballot access for freedmen. Um, And I think that the Cherokee Nation has done more intentional work in recent years um, to improve upon that. But even in this last cycle in the Cherokee Nation, we saw some challenges um, for one of the the candidates who is a freed woman um, on the ballot that there were some folks trying to attack her candidacy because of the way in which she is attached to the Cherokee Nation. Um, And so I think that there are definitely ways that their elections um, are the best of what we hope in in democratic systems. Um, And also they are not untouched by the challenges that we see um, sort of at every electoral level. Yeah, it would be hard for that to not be touched in a lot of ways, just like you said, based on the fact that they're working within a, a colonized system. I'm curious, 
if you could speak to why it's so important to use your vote, your voice, and to vote in every possible election, whether it's a road tax or here in Norman now we're talking about this turnpike from mayoral to city council. Why is it so important to show up for all of those locally? And why is it so important to make sure that you are contacting your legislators in addition to just voting for the president every four years? Yeah, um, I think that my answer on this has probably changed a lot in recent years. I, again, got into a lot of my advocacy work through electoral politics. And so for a long time, really harped on the importance of voting. And I do think that voting is important, but I also have to often remind myself um, that voting is a tactic and it's not a tactic that is accessible for everyone. Um, So there are a lot of folks that don't vote because they have been disenfranchised, because they have faced racism or transphobia or any number of other issues at the polls, because they have a, a felony conviction and the rules are unclear about whether or not they can safely vote. And so I just want to name that um, kind of as, as how I, I ground my voting is important and um, it's not the only tactic that is available to folks and it's not available to everyone, um, including folks who do a lot of important activism in our communities who are ineligible to vote because they don't have papers, um, because they're not citizens um, and are disenfranchised in that way. But for folks who can, I think that digging into local elections especially is important. And I know that it can be so difficult um, and it can feel like such a confusing process to figure out what these candidates stand for, especially when there's not party identification attached. that it can be difficult to work through ballot measures and figure out what they actually do, but that it's really important to the extent you can to look to organizations doing work in these areas um, to try to better understand what's going on. Because the more local elections you can vote in, the closer to home um, you get those votes, the more that really impacts your day-to-day life. And I think that We are often so focused on federal races because that information is more accessible, because there are a lot of outlets talking about what the candidates stand for um, and what issues that they care about and what their positions are there, that I understand why those elections, um, with all of the, the media attention and dollars towards them, are the ones folks show up for. But those ones closest to home are really where people have the most control over how you live your day-to-day life. Um, and if we can work together through the the difficulties of, of figuring some of those out, we can, I think, slowly but surely build those benches and elect people who more closely reflect our values. Yeah, that's so interesting to think about voting only being one part of the process. That's not something that we talk about a lot. I was thinking, as you were talking about focusing on local matters and I'm sitting here nodding and yes, yes, that's, I love all of that. I did remember what happened when we did exert some level of local control during the pandemic and our state legislature in Oklahoma happens to be very unbalanced. It happens to be very weighted to one side and they decided, no, no, that won't do. We can't let municipalities decide what they want to do. And they kind of swept the leg and took that away from us to a large extent to where certain mandates couldn't be imposed to help with the pandemic and things like that. Do you feel like that will come up more as more focus comes to local issues or are there ways to mitigate that so that we can not lose any ground that we gain at the local level? So I definitely think we'll always see some level of that. Um, And I want to say to some extent, like regardless of who is in power, that for state legislators, um, even the ones who currently advocate for small government and then also push these same efforts to sort of take away that local government power, it's about their power and control. So anytime municipalities are making decisions, how they are, are viewing that instead of saying, wow, I'm so glad that folks are empowered to make a decision that makes the most sense for their community. Instead, their current view is, oh, wow, that's taking away some power from us. That is chipping away at the power we have 
to to make decisions. And I think especially when we look at the state legislature, it's so important to note how often like almost nationalized the issues are that we think of our, our legislature as the worst of the worst. And in a lot of ways it is. They're unfortunately effective at doing a lot of harm, um, but they're also not coming up with that themselves, that those are, are bills that are copied and pasted from national orgs that are being run in other legislatures across the country. Um, and so to some extent, the like starting local still makes the most sense to me, both because we can at least t- take those initial actions, right, and and challenge um, the pushback from state legislatures when that happens. And also because it's the way that we build a bench of people with experience and capacity to better govern and listen to the people closest to them. I'm thinking so much about this next election cycle and just the number of races happening. And there's a lot of focus on um, Oklahoma will have potentially now um, with a challenge around one of these, but um, maybe two Senate seats on the ballot um, because of those open Senate seats also looks like we will have open congressional seats in several parts of the state. Um, People are looking at the gubernatorial election and the attorney general's race a lot and these like big state seats where it does not feel like the, the sort of power and momentum exists to make shifts in the way we would like to see them right now. But there are also 27 district attorneys who are up for election if they have an opponent, and most of them have maybe never had an opponent, especially in a general election. There are all of the county races that could happen, um, county clerk and assessor, county commissioner races in all 77 counties across the state. Um, There are these state legislative seats where... We are seeing folks challenged for doing good work and challenged for maybe standing up when the rest of their party wouldn't. Um, and I would love to see like us shift our focus there more um, to that local power so that we have candidates willing to put their names on the ballot so that we are funding and supporting and giving our, our time and energy to those races so that we can build the momentum to make sort of those larger, bolder changes in the future. That was a good answer. (laughs) So good. (laughs) What advice do you have for people who are trying to sort of get their first foot placed into either political activism or, you know, maybe it's more about particular causes that are affected to a great degree by legislation and things like that. Where could be a good place for someone to start if they didn't really know? Is it reaching out to their representatives? Is it engaging more in city council meetings? Where can they kind of dip their toe in? Yeah, um, there's a, an activist um, in the abolition space, Miriam Kaba, who I follow and who has given me many mantras in um, the work that I do. My favorite being the idea that hope is a discipline, but she also often reminds folks that anything worth doing is worth doing with others and provides the reminder all of the time um, that all of these issues are interconnected. You don't have to have the solution or the capacity to solve all of them. If you are digging into something, you are helping the broader movement. And so I think To that extent, my answer is the place that makes most sense for you is the place where your like passion is rooted and where your your power is that um, that may be your city council. It may be connecting with um, folks who are organizing around disrupting the carceral state. It may be really digging in at the county level around the harms of the Oklahoma County Jail. And I think of Folks like Marty Piercy, who has OKC Span, who's really tried to create some community spaces that are are learning oriented, but also are connection oriented, um, or Oklahoma Progress Now that is doing monthly meetups um, where people can come together and connect across issues and find that group to connect with and those places to dig in. Um, and I think that whether that is finding organizations doing work that you really like and following them for events and opportunities or 
something a little more local and grassroots showing up to a mutual aid fair uh, that's happening in your community or community garden that there is no wrong place to start, um, that it's finding capacity that makes sense for you and the like community spot that feels like the right place for you to, to plug into. Finding capacity that makes sense for you. That's huge. It's so, it's as simple as that. When you talked about hope that, that really resonates with me and like um, what you are, what keeps you going. When I think about um, some of the environmentalists that I listen to, they say that it's not hope, that it's anger that keeps them going. But when I think about social justice activists, they do say that it's hope and that it's love. Um, So I'm wondering if you can pinpoint if it's an emotion or a people or community, what keeps you going? And when you heard Wendy Davis giving that filibuster, was it anger or was it hope that drove you to kind of shift everything? Yeah. So I think the, like the Maryam Kaba phrase is hope is a discipline. And that has been important for me because I think so often folks sort of paint hope as just like this inherent thing you have and it is easy and happy and light and you should be hopeful and so much of the work does not feel that way um it can feel really bleak and so for me it is being intentional about practicing hope and and finding hope and sometimes that is realizing that I feel too isolated in the work and I need some community of people who are doing this together sometimes it's finding ways and time to support other folks who are in this whether that is you know knocking doors or making phone calls for a candidate um, or sitting in on a, a webinar someone is hosting to like learn more about the work they're doing or the way they're doing that work that can re-inspire me. Um, but I think for me, even with Wendy Davis um, and watching that filibuster from afar, I definitely felt some fear and a lot of anger that we were having to fight these same fights over and over again. But I think that there was still hope in that too. The I want to be there and do something was rooted in hope and it was rooted in seeing so many other folks show up in all the ways that they could, whether that was physically going to the Capitol and ensuring that there was always a full gallery and a line of people outside ready to relieve those folks um, or whether it was sending pizza uh, to the people waiting outside there, making sure that they had water because you couldn't physically be there in person. Everyone really came together in that moment. Um, And I think that I carry a lot of rage and a lot of fear um, in this work so often that it's important for me to practice that hope. And also, I think important to acknowledge the full breadth of emotions and make sure Mm -hmm. that as often as possible, I'm sort of checking and removing shame um both like that shame i feel um and that shame that we are so conditioned to sort of push onto others um that that's been a really key piece of growing my activism Mm. oh that's so good that's what it's about you know collecting all of those emotions whatever it is bottling up your rage But, you know, then showing up with that compassion and showing up, you know, like Hannah said, asking, how can I help? It's bringing your full self to to these spaces and showing up and finding your community and not giving up. So I'm curious. I know that I have seen, I don't even know how many legislative sessions that I've been following you now. And I know that it gets really difficult and very taxing, both emotionally and physically, And it can really wear down on those previously full cups of hope. What ways have you found to care for yourself during those tough seasons so that you're able to keep pressing on? Um, They'll note that it's always a bit of a work in progress, um, that these past few years have felt especially tough. And I think part of that is because the Oklahoma legislative process already removes legislators from the people they are harming so often. Um, we're one of the only states that doesn't have any space for testimony. So legislators never have to hear 
on the record from the folks that they are harming. And that as they have continued to meet without any COVID mitigation, it has made the folks who are most vulnerable to their harm sort of even further removed from those spaces. And that for me, it's a constant sort of battle of dealing with, okay, this is getting worse and I have to acknowledge that. Um, how, how do I continue to do this in these conditions? But that some of it was recognizing that I don't always have to be in the building, um, that I can still keep folks in the loop and do a lot of transparency work from the safety of my home, that I don't have to always sort of expose myself to the people causing the harm. Mm-hmm. It's realizing that I have to do some sort of building in addition to all of the like fighting to stop things. And so when I was at the ACLU of Oklahoma, a lot of that was figuring out like where there were spaces we could push for wins. Um, those were long and slow, but we saw things like the passage of House Bill 1269, which led to that really large commutation effort and being able to get folks free. Um, in addition to just fighting all of the harm was really important. And currently with Freedom Oklahoma, for the month of March, we are doing a youth advocacy month where we are putting out content to help young folks build their advocacy toolkits um, since they're increasingly the target of so much harm. And so that like the building piece of it is important for me. Like where can I build that groundwork and see some wins in addition to just trying to stop the, the kind of avalanche of bad legislation. And I think it's really community centered for me too, that I have to notice when I feel alone in this and remember that it is always a group project and that that isolation not only makes it a little more difficult to sort of fill my my cup on on the hope front, but also puts me in a spot where like I get deep into those shame feelings. I think that like when I am reminded and when I can place myself in that group space, um, any lesson, any chance to do better um, is a chance to do better for us collectively. And when it feels isolated, any ask to do things differently feels like a personal attack. And then I get into that like, shame and guilt and space where it is a little harder to listen because it feels personal um, and not sort of accountable to the the broader group. And so really making sure I can connect with community and plug folks into the work with me um, and plug into the work folks are doing has been an important piece of making sort of legislative advocacy and transparency work sustainable for me. I love how much of that that you have identified. You are so good at humaning. <laughs> That's good. That's beautiful. Yeah, it really is. I am curious, though, just generally with everything going on in the world in Oklahoma, is there something that you think is the most important? Like we absolutely have to open up voting rights or we absolutely have to give people autonomy over their body? Is there something that you think is the most dire, the most critical just generally right now? So I think an important thing for me has been trying to remove both like false dichotomies and sort of false hierarchies from a lot of my work. It was really important for me to realize that thinking of things as good and bad people, the work, um, like was not helpful, that so long as there is a bad category, I either am going to place myself in that or not place myself in that and then remove myself from accountability, that we all do harm, um, that that exists, that that is a like starting point um, and that the work isn't trying to become good or not be bad. It is to disrupt harm and to make ourselves accountable to the harm as often as we possibly can for sort of our broader collective liberation. And so I think sort of a similar thing, it's almost impossible to place the like issues folks are facing in a hierarchy because to some extent, all of them feel urgent and threatening Mm -hmm. to someone and no one's suffering is okay or less awful than anyone else's that like the world we are working towards is one where everyone has the safety and security to thrive. And so I think that like the most urgent piece of my work at this moment is really attack on transgender and two-spirit young people 
we know just the introduction of the kind of legislation we've seen in the space, not not even the passage, which is especially awful, but just the introduction increases the suicidality of trans and two-spirit young folks. And so for me, it is urgent not only to sort of disrupt these policy efforts, but also to make sure that there are resources and spaces that celebrate the fact that trans and two-spirit kids are are sacred um, and worth celebrating and protecting. And all of that comes sort of at the same time as so much other urgent work. And so I just want to like make space for the fact that I think our advocacy is right. Like the, there's often the, it's not, it's not a pie, right? Like there's, you don't get less of it um, by lending your power to others, um, that there is always space to sort of meet the most urgent needs in your community and to lend advocacy capacity. And so for me, that is realizing that I cannot um, do all of the legislative advocacy things at once, even if I wanted to. And that was a, a long lesson at, at the ACLU where I was trying to cover a lot of bases and always felt sort of depleted from trying to do all of them without the capacity I needed. And so in my current role, it's recognizing that I have the capacity to direct folks to actions um, to protect to us LGBTQ plus folks um, and to create the spaces that celebrate us as a community. And that as I'm following the legislature, I can lend some of that energy into lifting up and making sure things that are urgent and maybe sort of get jumbled in all of the meetings and bills are on other people's radars and that I can lift up some of the pieces of the process that people can plug into. And so I think that what's the most urgent is sort of what you can do to, to help folks most lo- locally in your community who are, are facing the harm. And that may be listening and lending platforms um, to people who are doing the work and need that uplifted. It may be giving some mutual aid dollars to people who need the money right now without the strings of nonprofit work that like each of those things is, is equally urgent. Um, and none of them is the wrong place to start at or to lend your energy to. I love that so much because a lot of the discourse that we see online is, you know, people being shamed or othered in some other way because they're speaking about a particular issue. And then someone comes along and says, well, you know, while you're worried about that, there's this, 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 and this happening. And it's, people don't understand that you can care about more than one thing at a time, just because you're speaking on one thing that is topical in the moment doesn't mean that that's the only thing that you're working on. And also, I think a lot of people feel overwhelmed by the concept of advocacy and activism and they don't know where to start and they do feel like there's a wrong place to start because of some of that discourse. Like if I jump in here on this issue, then I know A, B, C, and D people are going to be really mad at me because they just got mad at person R over here. So I think it's really great that you were able to name that and explain it so thoroughly in such a way that it really isn't about the best thing It's more about what's the next best thing that you can do within your means and your skill set in your community. What's what's the next Mm -hmm. thing that you can do? And it could be one of five different things, but knowing that it doesn't matter which one of those things you pick, it's still going to be the next right thing to do. Yeah, I think that when we talk about activism and advocacy, people feel like we're asking them to show up at every social justice thing stand up for folks with disabilities, stand up for veterans, stand up for caregivers, blah, 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 blah. But it's more so loving your neighbor well um, in your neighborhood, in your community, the folks within your community spaces. Gosh, yeah, that that's going to be so powerful when people hear that. Minds are going to be blown. We're just going to hear boom when it drops. <laughs> <laughs> Minds just being blown. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, right, there's always room to say, like, who doesn't feel the spaces for them? How can I make this space more accessible to more people? Is there room in this advocacy like for more folks? Have I like limited this? Are we limiting this in some way that isn't necessary? But that also anytime anyone engages in activism, there are going to be folks who tell you that it is not right, that it is not enough. 
And I think that that feedback should always be heard urgently, but not personally. Like, mm-hmm. is there space to, to think about ways that it could be expansive? Is there room to learn? And the reminder that like we, we do activism work, we do community work at the intersections of trauma. And that means that oftentimes, if you do this work in any capacity, like you are both triggering some of your own trauma and you are going to be the like receiving point for other folks trauma the like it's not enough it is not this particular thing is often a trauma response of I don't feel seen or heard in this or this is different from how I would do it and I don't feel a part of this mm-hmm. and so I think the more we can remove our reactions to say you know that hurts me or I don't I don't have room to listen to that I'm doing what I can to both like continue the work and make it more expansive, but also to just give other folks and ourselves space to learn and communicate and to not take all of that trauma response personally, but to make space to digest that and build through it, I think is just critical to, to making any of this sort of sustainable. So what I'm hearing in this whole conversation is that it's really, and it's not something that you've said explicitly, but it's very important for people who are in advocating and activist spaces to have some measure of care that, you know, whether that's therapy or just a particular friend or community member that helps with that self-awareness and the, like the caring of your inner spirit and soul so that you can have those boundaries that protect you in those rough times. And that so you're also hopefully inflicting less of your stuff onto other people. Yeah. And I think that it can even be like as simple and a starting point as saying, like pausing whenever you feel defensive. Like anytime you start to say, wait, no, or I didn't mean to pause and say, okay, like why, why do I feel defensive about this? Like, what is the critique here that has triggered that response? Um, And is that response helpful in this moment? Or is it something that, like, I can work through? Is there some some room for me to take, even if there needs to be a follow-up discussion, where I can be in a better place where I'm not acting sort of out of trauma, but I'm acting out of a space where I'm thinking about sort of the collective good and the broader work and that it's part of why like having community in it is so important that it fundamentally can't be about you when you are doing it with other folks. And that's like, that's how we, we build and grow. And that's how we have folks too, that help us identify those like, Hey, like maybe you need to take a step back. Maybe you're trying to solve it all right now. Um, Or like, here's, here's a, here's some lunch or a bottle of water because it seems like you've been pushing through and haven't like done some basic self-care and so I think that the community piece of this like whether it is in person or like a a, a virtual community you know whatever that looks like for you is so critical to how we do activism in a way that benefits communities and not individuals which brings me to the point that online friends are real friends Yes. You don't have to have been in physical presence with someone for them, for you to be of great value to each other. But also it's so important that we don't get really comfortable and sit within our own echo chambers all the time, or we're never going to be able to have that measure of self-accountability or self-reflection or anyone around us to say, I can kind of see what this person is saying. Let's work through this or yeah, that could be like, maybe we can work on that, but you know, to help you be accountable in a loving way and a, and a safe way. Yeah. I will say, I think one of the things that is often hard about legislative advocacy, especially, but um, any advocacy where you are asking folks to do something where like there is a person at the receiving end of your ask is it can be really tough to maintain some of those relationships where people with power believe that like, friendship removes them from accountability Uh, in some way uh and when they see like those asks as a personal attack rather than space for growth and accountability it is really tough and I have like lost some friends in this work and it is hard when you're asking them to 
to do a bit better um, or reminding them that folks are, are watching and that the actions they are taking are not in line with either the, the, the vision they have shared for what they are trying to build um, or the values that they say that they're working within, that I think it is important in, in building friendships um, and especially like for white folks engaging in this work to make space for like feedback and accountability in those close relationships too. That if like your friend spaces are echo chambers because there is no room for accountability, that there is also activism to do within those friendship circles Uh um, to build that vulnerability and trust at a level that you can have honest conversations about what it looks like to receive feedback and like act on that. Um, That those are all skills worth working on and like what better place to start than the the folks that you have some trust and familiarity with absolutely this has been so good nicole i'm so grateful we have you like fighting for us fighting with us you know our generation we don't have a big figurehead you know we don't have a mlk but we've got you and we've got folks like you and i think we're gonna be okay well i am grateful for this space and grateful for all of the many, many people who have helped me like do a lot of self-realization work and grow my activism and sort of continue to grow it in a way that includes as many people as possible and is truly as compassionate as possible, both towards the folks that I am working with and towards myself. Yes. Yes. Okay, and with that, we now have some rapid-fire questions. Question one, what are you reading? I've been reading a lot of romance novels lately. Something fun and light. Um, I just reread One Last Stop by Mm -hmm. Casey McQuestion. Um, Queer romance, a little bit of, like, sci-fi in there. Super fun. Okay, let me go ahead and add that (laughs) to my list to read also. Uh, Question two, what are you watching? I um, just finished up the Jeopardy college championship. Yeah. Um, Love Jeopardy. Yes. It is always like a fun, nostalgic watch. They just did a a new college championship that you can stream on Hulu, which was fun and light and something to like plug in and pay attention to without being too heavy with everything going on right now. I love, I love the college championships, especially because I know more of the answers, <laughs> which is not to say that it's a dumbed down. It's just more accessible for me. Yes. For yes. Sure. There were both a lot of those. Oh, yeah. I've got this. Um, <laughs> and and some of the pop culture things where I was like, okay, I am out of this age. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an old. Sure. <laughs> Elder millennial. Okay, next question. What are you eating? Like what fuels you or what gives you comfort? Favorite snack? What do you eat? Um, I always struggle during legislative session to like have the executive function to cook meals that are like good and healthy. Um, And as someone who is autistic with a partner who is autistic, like also deal with all of the food fixation things um, that provide some extra like fun challenges there but have been trying to figure out like what are low step recipes that make me feel good and refueled right now. So there's a a soup by Helen Rosner called Roberto that has like a a long history as it started out in a, I think maybe like an e-newsletter in the early days was then on a blog, but it is hearty and easy and meant to be made with things that are accessible to you so it's a like you can use this thing if you have it also all of these (laughs) other substitutions work and so it is my like go-to right now for easy way to get some vegetables easy leftovers um who who doesn't love soup listen if you don't (laughs) i love that how are you sleeping uh not well at the moment i have narcolepsy so i struggle with sleep as a whole um, and always have. Mine presents as chronic consistent fatigue. So my brain does not process that I've gotten enough sleep even when I have gotten enough sleep. Mm. Um, But also right now I'm definitely doing some of the anxiety sleep patterns of sleeping for a few hours at a time, dealing with some insomnia, 
playing a lot of like 3 a.m. Quartal. <laughs> so work, it's work in progress. Yeah, listen, I hear that. Um, okay, last question. And this might be something that you've already said, but what is the most powerful moment of activism you have read about historically or have been a part of? I think that for me, there's always more power sort of in being in the moment than, than reading about it. I feel it a lot more deeply when I am in an activist space. And I think that being in McAllister on the day that the state tried to kill Julius Jones and being there to sort of hear in real time the results of so much long, difficult advocacy that he was going to live, that his mom was going to get to hug him, and that we could continue to fight so that he is free is just um, like a moment that I will I will never forget sort of the, the power of that space and all of the, the powerful spaces that led up to that. Yeah, there were so many powerful moments, especially in that last week leading up to that day. I don't know that I'll ever forget a lot of what I saw that week, and I was only seeing it from a distance, right? Because showing up in protest spaces is not typically how I do best in involving myself in activism, although sometimes it is. There's also the issue of, you know, having a child. And so our family was represented in a lot of that by my husband. That felt good for me, for us to just have someone there who sort of represented the family. But seeing all the people at the Capitol was incredibly powerful. I don't know that I've ever cried as much as I did during an activism moment as I did both the evening when everyone was speaking at the Capitol and then again on that day in McAllister. And it wasn't just about what was happening. It was about that collective effort. It was about all of the angst and desperation, honestly, that came from so many corners of the community. And to see that have a positive effect and outcome is not something that we see a lot in in our community. And I think that's really what, what struck me in that whole situation the most. Yeah. I think a, a piece of that that was really important for me too is I really struggle with joy and, and celebration and imperfect wins. Like that is a yeah. A thing that is hard for me, um, but is also important in advocacy. And so in the moment we got the news from the governor and everyone was just joyous, I immediately was in the, he put conditions for life without the possibility of parole, which is another type of death sentence and is incredibly cruel that I struggled like in that moment to feel the full sort of joy that everyone else felt because yeah. I was stuck in the and there's so much work to do. Yeah. Um, but was also so grateful in that space and in, in the space that that evening that um, organizers decided to provide where we got to celebrate Mama Jones and just see her joy. And it really helped me sort of tap into that. OK, like we can we do get to celebrate this like we we can make that space to celebrate the win while also acknowledging sort of the, the future of the work here. And so. That's a point that I think in sort of the broader themes of hope and how you sustain yourself in this work is finding ways to celebrate the wins, however imperfect or temporary they may be, finding space to celebrate the folks leading this work, leading these efforts um, is is so critical and important to have that joy because yeah. there's no shortage of all the other stuff. Right. Yeah. And I think a lot of people were in a similar space as you at that time. And it was, I think the, the main theme that I saw that evening, at least on social media was tonight we celebrate tomorrow it's back to work. And I think that's just sort of a constant within activism. It, I don't know that we will ever get the clean, clear cut win that we're looking for. And so, yeah, really instilling that ability to celebrate a small win inside of an imperfect win is still okay. And it's actually kind of necessary to keep going. As a dancer, you know, that um, movement and rhythm aspect is so healing and so much like worship to me. And so to see Mama Jones lifting her hands and dancing and moving her feet, I... 
I just really connected with that within my soul. And I will, I will never forget her dancing. Well, Nicole, this was everything and more that we hoped it would, that it would be. Everything, everything. (laughs) I knew that you would say some incredible stuff because you, uh, you just always do. I'm really appreciative of how you communicate within the community and how willing you are to step in and say, listen, I just want to acknowledge the harm in what we're talking about here and bring this other perspective in. And I also really appreciate generally the way that that communication is received by the people it's being given to. So I hope that that is more the rule than the exception in your interactions with people. And if it's not, then let us know and we will we will help people work on it. Thanks. Thanks y'all so much for this space. I'm excited to listen to all of these episodes. I There's so many folks doing great work and never enough time to like sit with celebrating that and learning from them. So thank you. Ugh. Man, we knew that talking with Nicole was going to be powerful, but my goodness. I'm gutted. I'm going to need to sit with all of that for a while. Mm-hmm. Nicole, we love you. So much. So coming off of that conversation, let's talk about what action we would love to encourage for this week. And, you know, it's come up a few times in this episode already, but... You know, I think just about every state legislature is in session right now. And I think most, if not all states are proposing harmful legislation against trans kids, against 2S LGBTQIA plus folks, against women's bodies. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for me, I think a lot of my action this week is going to be around contacting my representatives and making sure that they know where I stand on this matter, checking in to see where they stand on, stand on all of it. Even though I have representatives both in, you know, state legislature and state Senate that are aligned with my values, I know that they still need to hear from me. I know that they still mm-hmm. need that data and that information because it just supports their case. Yeah, for sure. And I wonder if part of that action and that work is you know, really thinking through if you have any barriers to doing that work, um, maybe that might look like you don't know exactly the best way to contact them. Or maybe you are like me and you hate talking on the phone and you need to figure out what their emails are. Um, maybe it is finding some resources like ResistBot or tons of other local organizations that have the email already drafted for you and you just add any additional thoughts or your name or your zip code, Um, but really sitting with that and understanding the power that your voice has and how critical it is to stand in the gap for your fellow human. Yeah, there's a lot of people that won't have the capacity to fight for themselves in this situation because they're currently being attacked and traumatized. So it's not a big ask for us to come in and say, this isn't right. This isn't what we want. And even if, you know, even if contacting your representatives is not where it's at, if that's just not where it's at for you, that's okay. There's other ways you can get involved with organizations that are doing work to support the people that are being harmed. Yeah. You can look for volunteer opportunities to learn more about causes that maybe you'd feel like you don't know enough about, but you want to support more deeply. You know, a first step into activism can often look like just going to a volunteer gig, just showing up one Saturday and helping knock on doors or do data entry or just meet the people that are doing this work all the time. And then you can go from there. Every journey requires a first step. And there you have it. Your word of wisdom. (laughs) Take that first step this week, friends. Passionate Activism Podcast is produced by Folded Owl and hosted by Shelley Leverage and Sky Latimer. Music by Santiago Ramones. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at Folded Owl. 
Transcripts and show notes for all of our episodes are available on our website at foldedowl.com forward slash pod. Thank you.